In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 18. A landless tribe of Israelites, the Danites, sent out spies to find a country to conquer. They lodged with Micah, whom we heard about in our last chapter. They lodged with him and his family and his personal Levite priest. They induced the priest to come and serve their tribe. So he stole the idol and the ephod and the contents of the shrine of Micah. Well, the Danites would then go on to attack the country of Laish. Good morning and blessed Eastertide to you. Today is Friday, April 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. Now, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us study Judges chapter 18, the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Pastor Boisclair, happy Easter. Good morning to you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So we're doing very well. Hallelujah. Yeah, good. I'm glad that you're doing good. You know, this has been an interesting couple of chapters with this roaming Levite who's found his way into the employment of this guy named Micah, and Micah's kind of running his own little shrine here, and now the Danites are going to happen upon him. Well, just an interesting, interesting couple of chapters that really demonstrate that the people of Israel are not worshiping God. Or at least, at least some are not worshiping God as He intends. Exactly. Uh, the it's interesting. The Greek, uh, Greek, <laughs> it was translated into Greek. Uh, the Hebrew has it as a he had Micah had a house of gods. Uh, so, so he had sort of like a, a sanctuary. Well, like you said, a, a shrine. I mean, it's translated that or a house of gods. Um, and uh, he, it, it's rather interesting. You note that uh, they don't mention his father. Uh, they say that he is he dwells in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, so, so you you kind of make the connection that he's an Ephraimite. Um, and um, but again, uh, he he's not uh, someone that is a faithful follower of of Yahweh. Yeah, that household of gods always reminds me of some of the pagan religion, some of the religions, like my experience down in Haiti, where they would have multiple different spirits and ancestor gods, and they would put Jesus right on the shelf with the rest of them. And I, I see that happening here, too. I always imagine Micah, he's he's got probably Baal, and he's probably got Dagon, if he's heard about him, and, and Asheroth, and he's going to throw Yahweh up there, too. And so, yeah, he ordains his son. He ordains well, I guess he has this Levite priest who really doesn't have any right to be a priest, but he's going to be anyway, and he thinks, well, he's a Levite, so that's got to count for something. It's just a whole messed up affair, and we're going to see it get even worse here in this chapter. Uh, before we dig into the text today, though, would you uh, start us off in prayer, brother? Yes. Let us pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we worship and praise you at your resurrection. We thank and praise you that you stayed with your disciples over 50 days teaching them the things of your kingdom and, and establishing your church that we have this day. We pray that you would guide us as we consider this precious word of God uh, that, of course, always brings to people, conveys to people you, 
that that uh, the word of God is the uh, swaddling clothes that wrapped you as an infant or the shroud that wrapped you in the tomb, but that uh, you are presented to us uh, through word and sacrament. And so we ask your guidance, your Holy Spirit, to lead us as we consider uh, these um, these accounts of the uh, dealings of, of your people, showing them not to be uh, perfect or those that should rely on themselves and their own works, but rather to rely on you and, and the manner in which you have established your worship in the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen to that. Okay, so um, anything else you want to maybe set the stage for for people to understand before we start reading into chapter 18? Yes. Uh, what's rather interesting is uh, chapter 16, of course, uh, is is the end of the uh, cycle, the Samson cycle, I think. And then the commentators say that that's kind of the end of the body of the book of Judges, that these other, these uh, chapters 17, 18 through 21 and so on are, are uh, appendices of the book of Judges. Now, what's rather interesting is that you might even say that the book of Ruth, it would be like a appendix of the book of Judges, because as it, as it begins, it says in the time when the judges ruled. And so, um, you know, the, but, uh, but it's nice that Ruth is kind of set apart from it because the lifestyle of uh, Ruth and Naomi is, is uh, God-pleasing, whereas the lifestyle of, of the folks that we have in chapters 17, 18, and 19 uh, are not uh, very God-pleasing. So, so in, in other words, they, they're appendices that are, that are put on there. And, and, and some commentators say that perhaps this event uh, where you have Micah setting up this house of gods uh, in his, at his home, what, what took place much earlier during, you know, in, sort of in the grid of the, the judges or, you know, the timeline of the judges. Uh, at, uh, they mentioned that it, it probably occurred or this, this whole event occurred after the defeat of Jabin, uh, the um, Amorite or the, the Canaanitish king, and uh, that uh, the, this is sort of like the, the situation that the land was in. There's also some concern among the commentators about the, I guess, the, the lineage of the Levite priest himself. Did you find any information on that at all? Because some will say, actually, the, I think the text that we have, the ESV, will attribute his lineage to just being the son of um, a guy named Manasseh. But then there are others who say that he is Jonathan, the son of Gershom. Uh, and we're going to get to that later in the, in the text today, but I just didn't know if you had any uh, ideas about that. Yes. Uh, the, uh, you know, the other thing that's troubling is it, it kind of gives you the understanding it gives you the impression that he is from Judah, from the tribe of Judah, because it meant, but, but a, a, he could be simply a Levite that lives in uh, one of the Levitical cities in uh, the, the territory of Judah. Um, and, and there, you know, the, the kind of the, um, there, there's sort of a textual, uh, I, I, I don't want to say a discrepancy, but you know, there's different texts where uh, some change, um, Gershom, of course, is the son of Moses. So the the um, uh, there are some perhaps uh, persons, scribes that have put down Manasseh, uh, in other words, to kind of connect him with uh, 
King Manasseh. Of course, that'll be, that would be much later in, in the um, northern, let's see, I'm trying to think it would be in the southern kingdom, the, the evil King Manasseh. Um, and I, I think that uh, there, as I think the, the the school of thought is that he, it's you should take it as Moses, you know, the the Levitical connection because Moses, of course, is from the from the tribe of Levi. Yes, he's like the grandson of Moses, and it really only takes one Hebrew letter as a and as a superscription to kind of make that okay. Look, this is not, not Moses, but this is Manasseh. And yeah, trying to protect that reputation of Moses, but probably an addition, which is why it's wonderful that we have these um, testimonies of some of the different, the different, uh, I guess we would call them um, the different autographs or the the different uh, fragments that we have. But I think at the same time, it doesn't really matter because uh, his actions outwardly, regardless of whether he's Moses's grandson or someone else's, is that he's he's acting outside of the the structure with which God has set up the Levitical priesthood, and we're going to see Dan then really being attracted to this in a way that shows that a lot of people. This isn't just a one off. It isn't just Micah and his little personal priest. This is a lot of people in Israel who really aren't even consulting God for His will anymore. Yeah. Yes. It, you know, it, it, when I remember reading this. Uh, in the context of preparing myself for the ministry in, in when I was uh, at Concordia in Fort Wayne, Concordia Senior College in Fort Wayne, which uh, was, of course, uh, ended. I was one of the last graduating class of, of that institution in 1977. But I remember reading uh, this uh, these chapters, and they were rather shocking. And what's interesting, you know, we were exposed to a lot of what we would call historical critical uh, literature at the time, just not not necessarily following it or, or using it to interpret scripture, but at least seeing what these fellows said. And it's interesting that they were shocked at, you know, the, the, the lack of obedience to Yahweh that was going on in, in chapters 17 and 18. You know, and so, so even the critics uh, said, you know, but a lot of times they like to take advantage of that and say, well, well, obviously uh, the law of Moses and the, and the, uh, you know the legislation of the sanctuary and all of that didn't take place and and uh, you know this was this was the actual situation that they had but even they were shocked by this but uh, you know i think I, I was just wanting to mention the the reasons for this the big reason was that the israelites did not follow god's will perfectly they did not expel uh, the canaanites from the land and and they were still there present in the land and uh, as as enemies of the people of God, you know, that would cause uh, like maybe uh, some some of them would, you know, force them out of their territory. You know, like the, the territory of Dan was in the south there originally, according to Joshua's, uh, you know, according to the allotment. And uh, they but they were forced into the hills or into the mountains where they didn't have enough room for their for their uh, tribe of Dan. And so that's why they had to uh, send out scouts to find uh, other uh, other uh, places. Well, let's get into that text, because that is where it begins with them looking for some land to conquer. And we will begin at the first verse. This is from the English Standard Version. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. 
So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and they said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah has dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. So they they go. They just happen to lodge at uh, Micah's house. I don't think it's just happen chance. I, I'd say that since he's running a pretty big cultural uh, worship center there, they probably find their way there pretty easily. And they run into this guy that they recognize. Uh, take us through what's happening. Well, uh, the commentator said that uh, the um, the uh, voice and accent of the young Levite was was not from that area, you know. And they could they recognized the fact that that he was not a local, that he was some, from somewhere else, and and that's why they they said how how did you get here? What 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 was what was the way? And we and of course we uh, know from chapter seventeen that you covered very well yesterday, by the way, uh, that. Uh, you know, he was that was kind of an improvement on the fact that Micah had um, installed or, or ordained, consecrated his son to be uh, the uh, priest at his uh, little shrine there. But then then here's here's someone that's even more legitimate, this Levite and so on. But but the uh, men from Dan uh, recognized that he, he was a foreigner for, uh, to there. And then, of course, he he basically shared with him them what happened. And then, of course, he has the ephod, which had the Urim and Thummim. And uh, he used that, of course, to inquire whether or not, yes or no, whether uh, they were uh, going, in, whether their journey would be uh, blessed by Yahweh. So we have him, they go there, they find out that uh, this guy, they hear his accent, and they're just like, so it's not that they recognize, oh, hey, aren't you, aren't you Bob's boy? No, they just, they recognize that uh, he doesn't fit in there, and he explains that he's been hired as this priest. And, and not that they would have or even would have cared, but they don't sit there and sort of chastise him like, you know, well, what are you doing here? I guess they figure, well, if you're a priest, then go ask God if what we're going to do is going to be successful. Do you get any sense or indication that he even bothers asking God? It, it seems to me that he just sort of is going to give them a favorable answer, uh, which is a pretty easy to predict if they've told him that they're going to go and try to conquer some land. They're a pretty big tribe, so he's probably thinking, well, of course it's going to work. Uh, it just well, sounds like he just is going to give them a, whatever answer they want to hear. What do, what do you think, though? Well, I, I would maybe uh, demur from that a little bit because of the fact that later when they uh, when the Danites are, are there and they want to uh, – you know, take take the the idols and and the and the priestly paraphernalia. Let's say uh, that the that actually the young Levite kind of stands in their way and says, "What are you doing?" You know. So, but I'm I, so I'm I'm taking this. Uh, you know, obviously these five 
it's five men I think that are sent to spy out. They are they're there, um, and uh, they um, uh, it's uh, he he does inquire. You know he does do, do he in the his uh, kind of kind of uh, inquires of Yahweh through the in his ephod if that is Yahweh. You know I mean again it's it's a, a matter of lot the the casting of lots. And uh, I would think here that he's just saying, you know, maybe just doing his job as as a priest in here. And, but then because of the fact later that uh, they, their uh, their spying mission is so successful, then they say, well, you know, here here's here's a fellow that was very uh, helpful to us. And that's why. And, and of course, look at all of what he's got here. He's got this priestly paraphernalia. He's got these uh, idols and so on. Well, that's certainly one uh, per- perspective too. You know, I think it could. I, I think it's still a little, let's say, not very clear whether he actually inquires or not. But we do see yes. that he gives them this message that they are under the eye of Yahweh. Um, so the question will be: Is is what he prophesies, so to speak? He's not a prophet, but is what he says come true? Right? Is this going to be just the case? Um, well, let's read. We're going to add some more verses. This is going to be verses 7 through 13. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Manahna-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim, and they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Now, uh, going back then, so they go back, they see, I got to tell you, this description of the people of Laish, with the exception of them being open to attack, just sounds so nice, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth, possessing wealth, uh, you know, that boy, that's, that's the way to live, except this uh, tranquility, as it's described by these spies, they see as weakness, and they use that to attack. Yes, and and of course, the thing is, is that uh, we as as uh, as the inheritors of the um, blessings of Abraham, and and we are as the church are the people of God. Uh, you know, we would be uh, we we are inclined to uh, be on the Danites' side uh, because they are they're part of uh, the people of God, and this was of course God's will that uh, His people would possess the land. Um, and and just to mention it, it, it 
I guess it was uh, unfortunate for the people of Laish that they uh, lived so far away from Tyre and Sidon. Actually, Tyre was, I think, even more of a uh, a strong city of Phoenicia that was close to them, and they were they were probably of those Syrophoenician type of 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 people and uh they were uh, you know they were businessmen not not uh not mercenaries or soldiers or or uh, they probably farmed the land and everything it was a very rich uh area it was around Hula Lake Hula which is one of the sources of the Jordan River and so it was a very a very uh, beautiful land and evidently they'd been they'd been spared being um uh marauders coming in and and harassing them and so that it, it was kind of like you know, this is a, this is mu- a much better situation for us up there than it is down here in uh, the you know in the environs of Judah and Ephraim. Certainly so. Um, and I, I want, let's talk a little bit more though about that statement. You know, because we do understand that God has given as an inheritance to the Israelites this land, and including that inheritance comes with a uh, command that they are to possess it by force and destroy the people who live there. I think it might be tough for the modern ears to hear uh, this idea of people living in, in peace and quietness, something we pray that we can do every time that we have the prayer of the church, it seems. Um, and here are people who don't believe as we do, of course, who don't believe as the Israelites, who are worshiping false gods, and yet here they are set up to be destroyed by God's people I guess you could imagine how modern day people that would really, I guess, hear be be very hard to hear in in our modern ears. Um, how might you explain that further to, I guess, get more people on the, uh, to understand? Well, as as the Lord uh, reveals to Moses and and uh, Joshua and so on, uh, the, these folks um, had the opportunity to um, live righteous lives. And and they of course had uh, you know reject well of course I don't I I don't know whether they had the opportunity to accept the worship of Yahweh, but uh, they, they they were um, they were evil uh, the Canaanites and the the, the Perizzites the Hivites and so on uh, they they were um, persons that God wanted to visit with uh, judgment. Um, yeah, well, and I think that 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 problem, that quandary between you know a god of love and a god of uh, of wrath or a god of uh, judgment, uh, it was was even a problem in the early church when we know that a fellow by the name of Marcion said that the god of the Old Testament is not the same as the god of the New Testament, and he uh, you know he he established he was the first one to establish like a New Testament canon in which he of course everything in the Old Testament's bad. Uh, and then, and then, there's only a few things in the New Testament that are good, um, and that was the, the Marcionites. Uh, that you know, that would be like in the in the uh, second century uh, of the early church. But but it, again, yes, uh, this is this is probably something that is heard with a little bit of uncomf- uh, discomfort um, by people in our day and age. Well, and we do know that they are going to go up against them, for that's what they've said. Uh, it says according to the custom of the Sidonians, the Sidonians were Phoenicians, uh, so they are on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, the custom there, I guess there's some expectation that the Sidonians would defend the city if they were attacked, but of course their distance from them is noted here. 
And then we go into this verse 10 where it says God has given this place or given a place, you know, into your hands. So the Danites are presuming that God is endorsing their plan to invade Laish. Um, and I think there are two different I would absolutely agree with what I think might be your perspective is that that God, of course, originally commands them to have conquest over the land. But I wonder if they're also encouraged by the priest's proclamation that we talked about earlier, the idea that the priest has said that Yahweh is going to be with you. I imagine that's on their minds, too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but do you know, it, you, you notice something about this uh, uh, text that it doesn't, as in the case of, of Joshua, or or in the case of the uh, you know the Pentateuch and Moses you know like in Numbers and so on, it doesn't say that Yahweh says to go up and conquer the this land. Uh, it 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 it's it that that's kind of strangely absent from from here. And the other thing that that is problematic is that you know you have uh, you know like with Micah who created this house house of gods. And and then you have the Danites who are willing to continue that wor- type of worship. You have uh, both their hands are dirty. So like let's say if if you know like looking at it from from God's perspective, if Micah came into court uh, into God's court and said, well they took my stuff here, and and uh, then the Danites would say, you know, well it's we we got it by right of force or whatever. But both your hands are dirty because you're both worshiping idols. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of, uh, you know, uh, fruit of the uh, uh, the product of the forbidden fruit. You know, they, they are not doing things the way they're supposed to. And, and Dan's, I guess their, their division of where they would get the inheritance is not in this place. So they end up kind of having two different places uh, at the end. Yeah, and so they named this place the Camp of Dan. So this is certainly part of how they see their, I guess their inheritance coming to fruition since they really haven't received it yet. I'll tell you what, there's a lot more to dig into. We'll, when we come back, we're going to see what happens next. But right now, we should probably just take a few minutes for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, my esteemed guest and I will continue studying Chapter 18. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Folks, I'm grateful that you've joined us this morning, whether it's on the air 
live or on demand at KFUO uh, as a podcast or through the KFUO app. If you enjoyed listening to Thy Strong Word, share your love of the show with your friends and family, would you? And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E. Don't forget that E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Drop by, say hello. I'm just encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with me and my guests each weekday. So thank you for listening. Well, now, Pastor Boys Claire, we uh, just were getting to the part where they have come to back to the house of Micah. No longer is it the five spies, but now it's the six hundred men of the tribe of Dan. Um, let's uh, let's read that part. We're going to read through verse 20, 14 to twenty. Then the five men who had gone out to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us to be as a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So, brother, we have here, they, they go back, they're, they're going with a little contingent, well, not a little, 600 men contingent, and they, they said, hey, listen, by the way, we ran across a priest and a, and a silver idol and all kinds of things in this house. Let's go check it out. And they go in, and they pretty much just take all the things by force. And then, almost as an afterthought, they ask the priest to join them as a priest to a whole clan. And this guy, he's, he's kind of a mercenary priest. He's like, sure, he'd love to, he'd much rather be a priest to a whole clan than just to this household. Uh, interesting things to, to try to pick apart here and figure out what's going on. Yes, he's he's uh, once a, a better gig, you might say. Uh, I think as as the guest uh, at the last um, uh, your your last show mentioned that uh, you know he he was out there looking for a gig and and he, and that's an even bigger gig. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and the commentators mention that they say a carved image and a a metal image. That what is said to be the metal image is the pedestal for the uh, carved image. At least that's uh, the position of Kyle Dalich. So, so in other words, it, it, it mentions, and, and it's like there are two words, uh, Pesel and, and, and ma, Maka or something, Masika. But it's, uh, you know, in, in, in a sense, it, one of the things I wanted to note, just, just as a sidebar, but, but very much in line with uh, what the Lord thinks about all of this, in Deuteronomy 27, 14 through 15, one of the curses that the people of Israel are to speak from Mount Ebal in, uh, near Shechem, uh, 
is it says, And the Levite shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. You know, those are the two words that are used for these two, uh, pre- these two paraphernalia, these idol worship pe- paraphernalia things. An abomination to Yahweh, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So that that's kind of like in, with that wording there that of that of those things that they're taking as they're going into Micah's uh, sanctuary and getting those things. Uh, that that's that's maybe the the, the view from uh, the law of Moses. Well, that makes sense too. I mean, that's connecting it right back to this whole concept of they are not doing the right thing. And yeah, this priest, I like how you put that. He's looking for a better gig. He really is. I mean, he already wandered down there and was very happy to be the priest of this man in his household, which I assume also had some community and and maybe even regional worship going on. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I just always imagine that Micah is setting this up as maybe tourist attraction isn't the right word, but... You know, he's setting up this little household gods and why would you need a priest and also to ordain your sons if you're not if you're not kind of expanding your your worship center there for other people to come. But regardless, they come in and there's this direct connection to yeah, what they're doing is against the the law of God. And so they took they took them first and then he took the ephod, the household gods. We already talked about that earlier, but they're carrying off not just uh, uh, images representing Yahweh, they're carrying off all the, the idols and the carved image, and they go out with the people. And, and funny enough, this whole thing started with with this Micah guy stealing from his mama, right? Pawning his mama's silver, or at least intending to. That's how it started, and she wants to make a curse on on him, and he admits it so that he doesn't get the wrath of the curse and they set up this whole shrine to try to avert the curse that she had placed on him. And now where have we come? Now we have 600 Danites armed with weapons of war standing outside the gate, five of them hauling off them and the priests that he had hired so that they could have their own little access to God. I imagine also that if they feel that God is going to be with them, and he's already demonstrated that a little bit, or maybe I should say, They've had some success and they attribute it to God's favor. Then now they're taking these, I guess, for extra measure of protection, right? This priest was right. The Lord is shining upon them. And if he was right and he was the priest of these gods, then we'll take them along too and see what happens. We'll add verses 21 through 26. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you have come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned back and went back to his home. Yeah, so Micah chases after him, and he's just like, hey, 
what are you doing? I need all this stuff, this people. And they, and they basically threaten him, right? Exactly. They put the uh, children and the little ones ahead of them because they were expecting a possible uh, rear-end attack uh, on the part of uh, Micah and his. Uh, and, and that kind of argues for, as you said, this this was like a, maybe a community shrine that was that was being that uh, was established and, and and kind of holding forth at that time. And and it, it's kind of like uh, it, the, the answer that the Danites give him is not uh, obviously it's an answer from from a position of strength because uh, you know if you want to keep your life you better just leave us alone. <laughs> exactly. He's yeah. He's just like you know angry fellow. I, you know it's it's so funny because it's disjointed in the English. You know we read here and kind of almost a, a monotone. You know angry fellows will be upset with you. But in the Hebrew, a little bit more colloquially, they're basically saying, you wouldn't like us if we got angry. There's a bunch of guys here that might, you know, that's a pretty nice, pretty nice house you got, pretty nice wife you got. Be shame if something happened to it. You know, it's it's a lot more uh, direct than I think sometimes we see in the in the translations. Yeah, it's uh, of course, you use euphemisms, you might say, uh, you know, there, um, but it's. Uh, as I say, you know, it, it sort of reminds you, and I think you mentioned this in, in the previous um, uh, show on, on chapter 17, that it's similar to when uh, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and, and their their uh, large retinue of persons and property left um, Laban in uh, in Padan, you know, in, in uh, where he where he was in, in um, Zaharan. And uh, going back to the the land of Israel, and that they, and, you know, I mentioned that J- Rachel had taken the household gods, uh, and and they were probably equal in in strength because, uh, but they but kind of they parted they parted in peace. Uh, then then Abraham then uh, Jacob had the prospect of meeting his brother Esau, who had armed armed men. So you know you have kind of a situation just like that. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, you know, Micah realized that he couldn't possibly um, get back what he had, what had been taken. Yeah, he walks around. He go, I should say, walks back with his tail between his legs. I think there's also some indication in this text that he was, well, he was making a living from what he had done. I mean, if this began with him having to steal from his own mother, now it turns out that his cult sanctuary must have been, well, it must have been something that was valuable to him beyond its just, I guess, a sentimental value. He was, he was having a living at this. Um, and then what's interesting is he, he says, the gods that I made, you know, he, he says, you take my gods that I have made and the priest and go away. What left do I have? I, I get, this is sort of a, an admission that, he knows that these deities are are just something that created were, were created by him. And I think this reveals, and a lot of people miss this, that the the people who worship these deities, including the the, the, the people around the other false nations, they're worshiping not the physical thing that they created, but rather the the image is just that it's an image of the deity or god that has the power not the object but it just it localized the god's presence for him so there's nothing that keeps him from just making more 
but obviously he feels slighted by their coming and taking these from him. Exactly. It, you know, it's interesting how Isaiah uh, speaks against um, this type of worship, where he says that the craftsman cuts a, a tree out of the forest and carves it and, and, and makes it his god. He worships it. Then he takes the rest of the wood and puts it on his fire and, and cooks his meal. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's like and, and I'm I'm reminded of, you know, like, for instance, the Kaaba in, in Islam before it became the, the shrine, the holiest shrine of Islam, was a house of gods that they, they warehoused the gods there in Mecca. And, and then, of course, when, when Muhammad came, you know, they, they reclaimed it, they purified the place and so on. But uh, what's rather interesting in, in a film about Islam, uh, Muhammad, Messenger of God, or The Message, uh, that came out in the 70s, I remember when uh, the... Um, the Muslim, or rather the persons of Mecca that believed in uh, polytheism or worshiping many gods, idolaters, uh, that they they were arguing and 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 the king of um, uh, the king of uh, the um, Abyssinians, who was a Christian, said, "It's yes, I recognize that it's hard to defend idolatry." <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, and aren't we accused of that sometimes, though? Uh, you know, I grew up down south, so, you know, the idea of even uh, crucifixes and statues of saints and even our Lord um, were things that were, you know, verboten to them. Um, and Lutherans, even today, especially here in the Midwest where I am, you know, I was with the the funeral director uh, who services a lot of the Protestants. We kind of have two funeral directors. Uh, two funeral homes in town, and one's got the Catholic guy, and one's the Protestant guy. And and I said we were we were talking about the crosses that adorn the uh, vaults that go over the casket. And for Roman Catholics, they always put a crucifix, and for everybody else, they put a plain Latin cross. Which, of course, there's no difference between the two in terms of what's going on your on your uh, vault in your funeral at your funeral. But I said. You know, brother, I said, why don't you put the crucifixes on the Lutherans? We would appreciate that. And he said, oh, I didn't know that you guys use crucifixes. And so there's this idea that, and of course, this has been an issue even since the time of Luther, where the prohibition by God to not create any graven image, that that somehow extends to uh, images of Jesus, icons, paintings, any of that kind of thing. Um how is it different in the way in which we utilize these types of images and the way that they were being used in worship by, well, by Micah and the Danites here, but also the, the pagan people? Well, it's, it, it is if you, if you um, make these images and, and you worship them, but as I think you very, uh, have very insightfully pointed out, even in ancient times, they they simply they realized that this these were not their gods they were just they were just images or as as some point as some point out that they were a, sort of a setting up of the throne or the uh, the habitation of a god in in the way that they do that the difference between uh, what we do in in of course having statues and and pictures or icons of our Lord and uh, of His people. 
that that is uh, we're we're not worshiping those. We're not uh, although it you know it's a custom. I think in Eastern Orthodox Church they venerate these things uh, because of what they are not. Uh, but the point the point is there's a higher truth that God became incarnate in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when uh, there was a con- controversy between the iconoclasts and the iconoduels in the uh, would be the early eighth uh, century, the 700s, or late seventh uh, century in the 600s, and uh, and then the, the council, the Second Council of Nicaea, which was in the year 787, they said, well, Christ became incarnate; he was visible, and so by by representing him in statues and pictures, we are we're acknowledging that that he was visible when he uh, appeared for the 33 years that he spent, uh, you know, in his state of humiliation on the earth. And so, so it's kind of like a there's sort of a, a a change that has come across that we're confessing the incarnation of our Lord uh, when we do that, but we do not worship them. Uh, you know, we 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 follow the 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 spirit of the law. You shall not make unto yourself any graven image, and bow down to them or serve them. That, right. that would so, be my explanation. Exactly, and I think that's very astute. You know, the idea is that the localized presence of God isn't dependent upon the painting or statue or whatever. You know, because you have a crucifix doesn't mean that God's going to be closer to you than someone who isn't currently in possession of a crucifix. And that would be the difference, I believe, between us and the pagan understanding, that while they certainly were thrones for their gods, their gods were somehow attracted to the throne, and therefore they would have higher access to them. And I think that's what we have to be very careful of. And what's a shame is many Christians, whether they know that or not, do do that. I certainly have no problem with crucifixes and paintings and statues. In fact, I think worship spaces that are adorned with these things are very beautiful and and they teach a lot. But we also have people who might wear like a little crucifix or a relic or they might, you know, they do these things almost like they are uh, magic tokens or totems that somehow will help protect them. And they're starting to then place the power not in God's promise of protection but rather in the object itself. Uh, so I didn't really want to go on a diatribe about that, but just uh, anything else before we continue and see how the the Danites got on when they attacked Laish? Yeah, they, they these are tali- are also talismans. What you said is true too. Right. Uh, they're totems and 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 uh, the amulets and and other things. That's superstition. And I, I imagine if you you might say there's a difference between uh, the those who follow the true faith and 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 have these things as aids to worship, recognizing that that God is spirit and those that worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. Uh, but that these aids are, are we, we should not trust in them uh, like in a superstitious manner. Uh, even as Jeremiah said, do not put uh, you know trust in these lying words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Uh, that 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 that's that's a wrong attitude toward that. Here we go with verses twenty-seven through thirty-one, which will finish up the chapter. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, 
Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after of the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laisha first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So a couple things stand out to me. First, well, first, what we've been talking about at the end, you know, we talked about who Jonathan is, this priest, and how he serves him for a very long time, he and his children. Uh, but I think it also speaks a little bit. Again, you know, we're uh, in theory on the side of the Danites since they are taking God's uh, promise to them. But the Lai, the people of Laish, I think there's a little bit of a, a political lesson here about building strong allies because we've been told several times again that the reason why they were easily conquered is because their main ally, Sidon, was far away and they didn't really deal with anybody else. I don't know. Maybe that's reaching too far. What do you think, brother? No, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it just it, it makes you rather sad uh, that that such a thing happened to to uh, peace loving folk. Uh, and, and of course, it, it's just that's the that's the presence of evil in the world. I mean, I'm not saying that the Danites, by doing what they did, uh, were, were committed. You know, again, they were following the will of God that they would possess the land. But on the other hand, it is, you know, in the, in the situation with uh, for peace, peaceful people, God, God is also the God of those people uh, in Laish. And so, um, you know, there's a I think maybe you've heard the story about at the uh, crossing of the Red Sea that the angels started singing with with uh, uh, Mo Moses and Aaron and, and Miriam and so on. And the horse and his rider, he gets thrown into the sea and the angels were, were singing. And, and then um, God said to the angels, well, the Egyptians are also my people. So, yeah, I don't want you to. <laughs> but I mean, I don't think that that that's not biblical. But I'm just saying that, mm -hmm, that sure. these people in Laish are also people, children of God are not children of God, obviously, but they are people that God has created. Well, right. I mean, it's it's more of a, I guess it's more like when we talk about those who die outside of faith, and we think of, well, there are good people, quote-unquote good people, who die outside of faith, and yeah, outwardly so, people who are altruistic, people who are philanthropic, people who are just nice to their neighbor, they those people exist, and many of them will be eternally damned because of their rejection of God. And so what do we do? Do we get mad at God? Or do we realize that that's why we have this mission to go out and proclaim God's truth to others? As it applies to the people of Laish, we're pointing out God's their God too, and he's only not their God in the sense that they've rejected him. And we don't know if they had the opportunity, but that really kind of doesn't matter when it comes to the reality that that the one true God is is visible, even in the things that have been made, so no one's without excuse. So it's more of a sadness rather than a, uh, you know, don't get mad at the Danites, get mad at the people for for not believing rightly. I mean, that's that's it's a tough to discern, but I think that's kind of where I'm getting where I'm going with it. I think that's that's the correct thing. It's another thing to point out about the the last thing about the fact that uh, how long that this uh, cult went on 
among the Danites. The first, uh, in verse 30, it says, until the days of the captivity of the land, which of course would be in 722 when the Assyrians uh, conquered uh, the northern kingdom. But it, but that actually refers to what the, it, it's more clearly understood through uh, verse 31. That was when uh, the house of Shiloh was destroyed uh, on, when Eli was high priest at the time of Samuel and, and just before King Saul. Exactly. And then we have here also, they go to the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. They rebuild the city. They, so they burn everything down, as often happens in war. They rebuild it. They name it after themselves. That's certainly not uncommon, even in the annals of history uh, beyond this. Um, but verse 30, and it just pains you to see, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And then they set up Micah's carved image that he made uh, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. We're, we're told here that, that until the captivity, this Jonathan guy and his descendants were the priests of the Danites. Um, I think that's a little bit of insight into the worship life of the Israelites before they were kings. Exactly, and and um, you know what's what's comforting in this is is these people of God were um, imperfect and sinful, just like we are, and and we all look for the righteousness and the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ to uh, rescue us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Amen, brother. Well, here we are at the end of our show. Anything else you want the people to know before we close out this morning? Uh, that uh, in in a sense it's uh, as scripture says against the forces of evil and of death our, our god is a god who fights for us and he has conquered death and and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel of our dear lord jesus christ and and so uh, in a sense as it was kind of like in real history there at the time of the conquest of the land of the of the holy land so also now uh, there is a war that goes on between uh, in in us or among us between good and evil, between the devil and our Lord, and of course he's the one that that uh, has won the victory. Amen, brother. Well said. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Boysclair, pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Pastor, it's always great when you're on the show. I always learn something. Thank you, brother. Yes, and I and on, and for you as well, and listening to uh, your your shows as well. And I think all, all the people that listen to KFU should take the time to share this with their friends. Amen, brother. Thank you. Well, folks, when we return on Monday, I got to tell you, it's going to be a little bit of a PG thirteen episode. So be forewarned. We'll be discussing the story of a Levite priest, or pardon me, not a priest, a Levite and his concubine who traveled through the territory of Benjamin and stopped at a city called Gibeah. There they met with a mob of wicked men who, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, demanded to have their way with the man. The Levite ended up giving them his concubine instead, whom he found dead the next morning. The Levite then cut her body into twelve pieces and sent them throughout Israel, calling for justice and vengeance. And the result was a bloody civil war that almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. So join us on Monday as we dig through this difficult-to-hear text that illustrates the depravity of many Israelites during this time. And until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.